Well, good evening, everybody. How's your Wednesday going? Incredible. You know what? It's been a good Wednesday. Wednesdays are, yeah, yeah, always good. I do like them. But it's, it's been awesome. Okay. Um, uh, who here, talking about Wednesdays, who here loved Monday when Pastor June was here? Oh, my goodness. Like, Kim and I were sitting here in the front row, and as Pastor June is sharing, it was like a, like, this is what we have been praying over and hoping and dreaming of for months. And it's like, it was happening. And you know that thing where you, you want something so bad and you just finally get it? And how exciting that was? Like, that's what it was for Monday for us. Uh, who is encouraged by Pastor June's message and his, his life, his testimony, his convictions? Um, like, I loved having his wife and their kids here. It was, they were adorable and it was fun. Um, I love that they're staying, they stayed in our dorms. Like, I loved all that. But like, his message and his conviction in his heart, like he handled, you know, our Canadian history with indigenous communities with such grace. Like he shared the reality of it, but yet shared it with such grace. And still, like I left with such hope. Like that was wonderful. Like I loved that. But the real convicting part that I had was when he talked about his calling, right? The church in Nanaimo and where there was no pastors that had been there for a long time. And there were times where there was no people in the service. <laughs> and yet he said the words, I knew that this is where God was calling me. And I thought, oh man, I want that for all of us. And I don't mean just in jobs and careers. I don't mean just in ministry or whatever. I mean in life, like that kind of assuredness and confidence of, oh, I know this is where God is calling me. I also loved it that it was in a difficult time that he was so assured in it. That was where I, like, I was so encouraged. Because oftentimes in difficult seasons, what do we do? We cry and we run and we think, oh my goodness, maybe this is the Lord closing a door here. Maybe, maybe I need to leave or transition or, or go somewhere else because it's not going the way that I had hoped or wanted it to. But it was in that moment that he's like, no, this is where God has me. I also love the fact that he was bivocational for years and worked his way up to a full-time salary by God's grace, through the season of COVID. Like, how crazy is that? And I just loved that kind of, like, Lord, whatever your will is in my life, I'm going to say yes to it. And that was, that is the Lord's will uh, in their lives. And it's so amazing to see God's fruit and favor in their ministry. So uh, we have another one uh, happening this Monday. Uh, a good a good friend of Kim and I, we went to school with Monty. Monty Harrop is the lead pastor in Quenelle. So he'll be here on Monday morning and we'll stay until Wednesday, I believe it is. Something like that. Yeah. So uh, he's wonderful. I love Monty. Uh, where's our security people? Like Peter, Sarah, like he was a security guy. Uh, he, was, he was one of those security uh, students. It was down at the bottom of the hill. Uh, people would sit in their cars. Monty would sit in his car. So anyways, pastors in residence, Monday. Okay, would you stand with me? We're going to read God's Word together. Well, I'm going to read it out loud to you, but I would like to stand together as, uh, as I read God's Word. We're reading out of Romans chapter 8. Uh, I'm actually going to go back a little bit, verse 12 uh, to verse 17, and this is what it says. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. 
For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For the Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Lord, would you pierce our hearts tonight with this message? Would you open our eyes to this message? And I pray for affirmation and calling tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may take a seat. Okay, so I have titled tonight's message, We Are Children of God. Okay? We are children of God. We both sang about it. We have read about it. I have titled my message about it. There is a theme going on here, if you haven't picked that up. We're children of God. Like all people on earth are made in God's image. But there is a distinction of those who are children of God. Those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved, sanctified, identified as children of God. And this theme of family, uh, Paul talks about in these few uh, short verses. He talks about being children of God multiple times over. He repeats it, this repetition, this motif, this literary device of repetition to highlight the fact that there is a specific theme that he wants to get across to his audience. Heirs of God's glory. And we call him Abba, Father. Paul is using uh, the example that Christ spoke to his heavenly father with. Abba, Father. It's an Aramaic term of of intimacy. It means father. It doesn't mean like daddy or daddy God. So don't go down that road, okay? It means father. Nobody's praying daddy God, okay? We're praying Lord. We're praying father. Got it? Good. (laughs) It means an intimate relationship of trust with the father. Abba, father. And so since Paul is talking about this theme of family, and since I have a family and I love my family, and I want to be known as that person that over-talks about his family, if we still had those wallets with all those like clear plastic slots in it that you could put pictures in it, I would carry a wallet like that with pictures of my kids, but since we have phones, I don't do that. And so I want to talk a bit about my family. You good with it? Great, because I'm going to tell you anyways. So last week, I talked about uh, the Briscoe boys. Oh, yeah, here's a picture of me and my mom. Uh, uh, I was raised by a single mom, okay? So uh, this is the last picture that we had together. I really love this picture a lot. So that's my mom, Wendy. Uh, But uh, I talked last week about the Briscoe boys. Right there. There's the Briscoe boys. Okay? I had a good haircut in the top left-hand corner. Still got that same haircut today. Uh, and then in the bottom right-hand corner, it was a mullet. So shaved heads and mullets are where it's at for uh, good hairstyles. Right, Austin? Okay, awesome. <laughs> His dad had a mullet while he was a student here too, which I think is awesome that you have kept that legacy. Okay, so that's the Briscoe boys. That's my family growing up. Uh, my family today is this right here. There's me, yeah, Rebecca, and our boys, Seth 
and Simeon. And that is this summer. Uh, we were in front of the cottage that we were staying at in the summer at Nanus. There's another one there of us. That's really more uh, who we are. That's the reality of our family, uh, the Briscoe. So I, there was the generation of Briscoe boys. I now have the next generation of Briscoe boys, which is so awesome. So we can go to the next slide. Uh, here we are, the next generation of Briscoe boys, my boys. I love them. Um, we named them Seth Griffin, which means anointed warrior, and Simeon Arthur, which is to be a speaker of courage. Uh, we took uh, their names and the meaning of names, believing that as we speak their names out loud, we're speaking their nature and their purpose, uh, and we're being prophetic in the sense that they will grow up to be uh, men who are uh, like Seth as an anointed warrior, caring and fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. And that Simeon would be an encourager, a speaker of courage and lift people up uh, in his life. So that's our boys. Uh, Seth is eight. Simeon is five. And I love being their dad. I love that they're my kids uh, and they're going to grow up to be godly men of good character where they're loving and caring and protective in a healthy masculine way. They will be humble. They will provide. uh, And I pray over them often. So those are my boys. I'm proud of them. Uh, I shared a bit. We'll get to the next slide in a second. Hold on to this one there because I like this, these pictures. Uh, I shared last week a bit about my childhood that I was raised by a single mom. I, I wasn't raised by my father. I was raised by a single mom and I had um, three brothers. My mom, she herself was actually adopted uh, when she was a teenager. She was adopted by her stepfather. She knew her biological mom, uh, but uh, she remarried and her stepfather legally adopted her as his own daughter. And my mom was a wonderful lady, but she had a a difficult hand uh, dealt to her. She was wonderful and lovely, uh, but had a difficult hand. And she raised four boys on her own and her five foot two height and stature, raising four boys. She basically used whatever she could in arm's reach to make sure that she had respect from her boys and would correct her boys and discipline her boys. Uh, And so she was raised, yeah, she was raised... Uh, in a bit of a dysfunctional family. She lived in a bit of a dysfunctional family. She raised her kids in a bit of a dysfunctional family. Nonetheless, she was a loving woman and a caring woman. So she passed away the summer after I graduated here as a student. But I count my blessings because I've had people in my life that has stood in the place uh, that have been more than just role models. They have truly been family in my life. Uh, I think in previous years, I've mentioned about my youth pastor. Uh, I loved my youth pastor. I still love my youth pastor. He's a hero uh, in my life. I've had people act as parents in my life. Even when I was a student here, the Demchucks played a big role in caring for me like a mother and a father would uh, while I was a student. Uh, But two people particularly, yes, my in-laws, but they're biological to my wife, so that doesn't really count. In the sense of like, non-biological, non-blood people who have played a massive role, like parental role in my life, have been grandma and grandpa Ellie and Elmer Neeson. So the next picture is of Ellie and Elmer Neeson. There we are in Parksville at the mini golf with the big boot. Who's been to the mini golf in Parksville? Yeah, awesome. So Ellie and Elmer Neeson, they are our Chilliwack grandparents. So when you hear me talk about our Chilliwack grandparents, this is them. We have absolutely no blood relationship uh, to Ellie and Elmer at all. They are uh, the stereotypical 
Dutch family in Chilliwack where like they were born in Chilliwack and their parents were born in Chilliwack. Their kids that they gave birth to were born in Chilliwack and all their kids still live in Chilliwack. And their kids are now adults and have their own kid and they all live in Chilliwack. And so it's just like generations of Dutch family living in Chilliwack. And uh, here's the thing about Ellie and Elmer. You can go to the next slide. They've got a lot of grandkids, okay? That is all of their grandkids. And uh, they have four biological kids of their own. Uh, and their oldest is the same age as Rebecca and I. Uh, and uh, all those four biological kids, they all have spouses. And uh, they all have kids. They have a total of 18 grandchildren, which is super awesome, right? And so you think, why do they need two more? Like, they don't. <laughs> but this is the kind of people that Ellie and Elmer are uh, to us. Technically, they have 16 biological grandchildren. But if you were to ever ask Ellie how many grandchildren she has, she will always tell you 18. If you were to ask Elmer how many grandchildren we have, or they have, they would, he would say, I don't know, ask Ellie. There's too many of them to count. <laughs> the motorbike that I ride, it's technically Grandpa Elmer's motorbike. The dirt bikes that our kids ride, Grandpa Elmer. He owns all that kind of stuff. But the love that they share, every, every like holiday meal that we spend in Chilliwack with Grandma and Grandpa Meason. Like last Easter, we had a couple students and Ellie and Elmer over at our place for Easter dinner. Birthdays, everything. Like it's, it's Grandma and Grandpa. This last summer was the first time Seth understood that we weren't actually related to Grandma and Grandpa Neeson. And he was kind of bothered by that for a little bit. But they are blessed with many children, and they are a blessing to us to include us in that category of being their children. So that is those who are older than me. We also have some kids who are part of our family, not adopted, uh, but we treat them like they are our own. And that is Gunner and Cilia. You'll hear me talk a lot about Gunner and Cilia. So uh, Gunner is the one on the far left there, Cilia in the dress. Of course, we like to make little faces together because Cilia is adorable, and I love her. Uh, they are our neighbors. They live in our complex. And um, again, they have parents in their life, uh, but they are currently going through a divorce right now. Uh, and so uh, we spend time with them as much as we possibly can. Uh, they live with their mom. So their mom is now a single mom. And uh, Gunnar and Silly come over to our place every day. Uh, we do before and after school care with Gunnar and Silly. So they get it to our place about quarter after seven in the morning, every morning. And uh, they leave our house around 5, 5.30 uh, in the evening when their mom gets home from work. We love them. They come to church with us. Actually, COVID was a huge part of getting them to church with us because we did church at home. And so then we just invited them into our home to do church together. And then when church opened up again, we just brought them to church with us. Uh, and so they come to church with us sometimes, not always, but sometimes they come to church with us. Gunnar and Celia, I love them. So that is my family. Okay. And Paul highlights this theme of family in this passage. There's a few themes that Paul has highlighted so far in our passages that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. And so I want to remind ourselves of these themes. So let's throw up the theme slide of the contrasts. Do we not have that one? The contrasts, the recap of, uh, of what we've been talking about. Sin, salvation, law, righteousness, and flesh and spirit. There it is. These are the themes that Paul has highlighted so far in our passages that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Sin and salvation. He's highlighted law 
and righteousness. And he's highlighted flesh and spirit and the contrasts of each of them in these passages. How we wrestle with it. How we work this out in our life, in our day-to-day, both spiritually and physically. He also talks much about slavery and freedom. That we have been freed, not only from sin, but the result of sin. Amen? The result of sin, the penalty of sin, of death we've been freed from. Yes, not from our mortal bodies, but from our spiritual bodies, we have eternal life. We are free from the power of sin. No more obligation to sin. No more debt that we need to pay for because it's been paid for us. Not only are we free from the power of sin, but we have received power to overcome sin. Amen? So last week, Kim finished her message off and she said, in fact, sorry, Paul said, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. This is not a Pentecostal thing, okay? This is a follower of Jesus thing. The spirit of God dwells in you. God is alive. Paul says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And this truth, what this truth does is it marks you. It marks you as one of his own. It marks you as his children. It marks you with identity. It marks you with meaning. It marks you with purpose. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Tonight's message is about belonging. Tonight's message is about being. Being who we were meant to be. Living as who we were meant to live as is what the gospel message that Paul is telling his readers is all about. So I said, he highlights it over and over again, that we are children and that we are heirs. Abba, Father, and this theme, and specifically this theme, he talks about the word adoption. The family model of adoption. And I share a bit of my story in the sense of Paul's talking about adoption, that God has adopted us into his family. And so I got one point for tonight's message, the spirit of adoption. Should be pretty easy to remember because the adoption concept, the adoption theme is the heart, the center of the gospel message. Paul says also in the book of Ephesians, he says these words, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He has predestined, he had made the decision to adopt his sons and daughters to himself through Jesus Christ, according to his pleasure, to his desire, to his want, and to his will. In Psalm 68, this is a wonderful picture of who God the Father is. It says, the father to the fatherless, the defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Like that's who our God is, the father to the fatherless, the defender of widows, to those who are lost. This is the God 
This is the holy God in his dwelling. And so Paul here is he's speaking to the Romans. We've got to keep in mind that he's speaking to the Romans. Because in Jewish law, in Jewish history, there was no real adoption law like what we would know as adoption. It's a different concept. Certain laws in the Torah wouldn't actually coincide with what we would call adoption. There was such thing as called a kinsman redeemer, right? Have you guys heard that term before, kinsman redeemer? Okay, so it would be like a male, a close male relative that if something were to happen to a family member, if something were to happen to a father, and then the wife would be widowed and the children would be orphaned, a kinsman redeemer, a close, the closest or down the line closest male uh, relative had not just the responsibility, but had the honor and the privilege to step into place and act on behalf for those who were in need or who were in trouble and who were in danger. And they would deliver or they would rescue the orphan and the widow. And they would bring them in and care for them and redeem their property. They redeemed themselves as a person, the kinsman redeemer. Great example of this is who? In the story of? Yes, Ruth and Boaz. Beautiful, wonderful story of redemption. Where the kinsman redeemer would come in and would care and act on behalf and step in place and redeem the person. And if a man were to die with no children, there was actually also a law that that the closest sibling or relative or cousin would take the, the widow as a wife and uh, was commanded to sleep with her so that she would, and he would produce an heir to keep the family lineage going, to keep that honor going and that legacy going. So the adoption law in Jewish context isn't the same. Now, there are some examples of adoption in the Israelite history, like Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, right? Uh, I think many of us know the story of Esther and being adopted by Mordecai, a family member. Uh, and then, of course, with Joseph being not the biological father of Christ, adopted him as his own. So there is some history to that. But this concept was a concept that the Roman culture would have understood. The Roman culture would have got this. Because adoption in Roman culture was a little bit different. The laws were a little bit different. That, that men could, and a couple could, adopt, not just for the sake of the child, but it was also for a way to further on their legacy and to expand their territory. I know that may sound really negative, but it isn't in the sense. They would take in orphans and those who were in need, and it was a way to further their advancement or further their legacy down their lineage. It was not just for the sake of the the child. It was to preserve the family, and a man could create an heir outside of their family. But it was also to the benefit of the children too. And Paul uses this concept to teach of the love of God. Because the adoptee in adoption received a brand new identity in Roman cultural law. They received a brand new identity. And debt was eliminated. And old obligations were eliminated. And new obligations were then expected according to who the adopter was. The adoptee actually gained a new identity and was assumed as in the same person of the adopter. Does that make sense? 
the parent would adopt the child and that child's value would increase to the level of the adopter in this context. They had a new identity, which meant a new beginning and a new belonging for a child that was without any hope. They had new value. They had new purpose. They had new meaning. They also had new inheritance. It was a big aspect of adoption. Inheritance of, of land, of cattle, of food, economics, resources. Culturally, all, and it would have been specifically to the males in this time, they, they would have all had joint, like held joint uh, responsibility of, of the property. Like even as a child, it wasn't like once they hit a certain age, then they were given this part or portion of their inheritance. It was like when they were part of this family, they had the joint responsibility of this property. So all children of any age, whether they were natural or they were adopted into, they were already heirs while the father lived and they had joint control of the property. A little bit different in our day and age, right? We don't have generations of family living together, although it does seem like we're going back that direction, which is where the economy is going right now. It's like our only chance and hope to own a home by any means is by doing it generationally. But it was normal that generations lived together on the land. And they had joint control. It makes a bit more sense in Christ's teaching specifically of like the prodigal son, right? Where it's like, hey, I want my inheritance now so I can go. And you're like, well, why didn't the dad just say no? But like the, the child had, had the opportunity. It was, it was the joint control. They had the authority and ability to receive their inheritance. Today in our culture, it, it, it doesn't showcase as simple and as easy because most of the time when inheritance happens, it's when somebody croaks, right? It's like when grandma and grandpa pass away or mom and dad pass away, then you gain the inheritance. Uh, different in this sense, different in culturally here. So do you get why Paul uses the context of adoption to the Romans? Because so many meanings showcase the gospel, showcase who God is, how he adopts us into his own family, that we have a new identity. Our old obligations and debts are wiped away and new obligations are assumed. We become on the same level of value. It says in our scripture that we become heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ, an identity that we do not deserve, but a new identity of meaning, of belonging of value. Ephesians 1, again, Paul says, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. Somebody needs to hear that tonight. He identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God guarantees that he will give us the inheritance he promised. Isn't that amazing? The Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a guarantee of our future, a guarantee of our inheritance, a guarantee of our belonging in the family of God. So in the concept of adoption, when you were born into, adopted into the family is when you received this new identity. It wasn't upon the death of the parent. It was when you were born into. 
Now, yes, because of the death of Jesus, it becomes available to us. But that identity of being a child of God, again, all are made in God's image. But the identity of being a child of God, of meaning and belonging and inheritance happens at birth, not at death. And so when we are born again, we become a child of God. That title of heirship becomes ours. John chapter 1, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who are we in God's sight? We are those who have the right to become children of God. What? Like, we don't have that right. Yet he gives us that right to become children of God. It's amazing. These, these contrasts that Paul uses, sin, salvation, law, righteousness, flesh, spirit, and then he uses fear and adoption. Because the verse preceding the one about adoption in verse 15 says this. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Which I find interesting that he contrasts fear and adoption. Right? Like those are weird contrasts. I can get sin and salvation. I can get law and righteousness. I can get flesh and spirit. But why why fear and why adoption? Uh, so here's why I think it is. A couple of weeks ago, funny enough, I woke up in a panic one morning. I was sharing this to Kim a couple of weeks ago, walking back from chapel. I woke up from a dream. and I don't dream often. Like, I just don't remember my dreams. And I woke up in a sweat of panic because of a fear that I apparently have buried deep down inside of who I am. And I can remember very vividly uh, this dream. And I can remember very vividly what happened in the dream, who the people are in this dream. Uh, And I'm not going to explain it, uh, but there was a deep fear that I had that took place in this dream. And the deep fear that I had in this dream is the feeling of being forgotten. The feeling of being alone. Like, I like to be alone. I just don't want to be left alone. No, let me say that again. I like being left alone. I don't want to be alone. You know what I mean? Like, I like being at home and Rebecca and Seth and Simeon being in the house, but I just like being left alone every once in a while. I don't like being in my home when nobody's in the home. You know what I mean? Like, I I like going places, but I don't like being the only person to go to that place. I like being around people more than like being by myself. And that's just not an extrovert, introvert thing. That is like a fear, insecurity thing. The feeling of being alone and isolated. The feeling of being like, like not belonging or being forgotten. Like talk about a deep, dark fear, right? Most of our fears are that, about being forgotten, being rejected, like feeling unsafe and feeling like things are meaningless. And adoption is the opposite of that. It's acceptance. It's security. It's safety. 
its meaning and its belonging. So it makes sense, this contrast. We weren't given a fear, or sorry, we weren't given a spirit of fear, but we were given a spirit of adoption. And so we have so far, uh, last week and for the next couple of weeks, given opportunities for students to share some stories. Uh, And we have a wonderful story of a person who, over the years, has worked through some personal fears and found some really cool breakthrough in their life. And so Abigail Davy Duck is going to come and share. Oh, hey. Okay. So thanks, Gavin, for giving me room. Yeah, that might be nice. I'm going to pray because prayer is just such a beautiful gift. I'm going to seek the Lord, and I would invite you to join seeking as well. Father, I thank you so much for who you are, for your spirit, Lord, that you meet us um, right exactly where we're at. You see us, and you know us so deeply and so intimately, Lord. And so I thank you for this opportunity to witness um, to all that you have done in my life, Lord, and for the opportunity to recognize you, um, your sovereignty, and your goodness, and your faithfulness, Lord, that this is truth that we can stand upon um, and know firmly, Lord. And so I just ask that these words would be of you, um, that we would turn towards you, Lord, Um, that it would not be my own strength or my ability, God, but um, that it truly would be a reflection of your goodness, Lord, and your ability to do a good work in your children, God. And so I thank you for um, the adoption that I've experienced um, and the ability to encourage others, God. And so calm my nerves and allow us to hear you vividly um, through this time. Amen. All right. So walking onto the summit property, I was an incredibly broken woman. Um, I understood that I was a daughter of God, a daughter of the Most High, but I didn't understand the significance, um, weight, or impact that statement would have and does have on my existence, on the way that I think, on the way that I speak, um, and on the way that I act. And so during my first year here at Summit in 2020, I experienced a deep sense of sadness and grief. Um, I was ruled by unhealthy habits that I had had for years. Um, Habits of sexual sin and sexually immoral relationships with men. Um, Sin was an escape to um, escape the reality of my mind, my thoughts, and the painful place of sitting with myself. Um, These thoughts and actions did not honor God. Um, Amidst it all, I knew that God had called me to summit for a reason and purpose beyond my, my own understanding. Um, So I continued in obedience to what he had called me to. Reflecting on my first year in college, I gained an understanding of the deity of Christ, which is actually 
insane to try and comprehend um, that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. So cool. I left the year beginning um, to understand what it is to be self-reliant, to have routine, um, to care for your body, and how that affects our mental health, um, better equipping us to love others. And after school, I went and worked at the egg store <laughs> and lived with the Kootenai family who have um, shown me the love of Christ, not only through encouragement, but also through challenge, um, teaching me what it is to live a life of discipline for Christ. Yet, I still sought unhealthy relationships um, because I still didn't understand my value or the fact that I'm to respect myself and be respected by others. Entering my second year, I ended an unhealthy relationship, and at the beginning of my second semester, I decided that I needed to change. I had many seasons where I would come to God, crying out to Him in repentance, seeking change, but I wouldn't uphold um, the discipline set in place. But this time, I needed it to be different. I had come to the end of myself. So I said, God, I'm done. Put to death the sin that has caused me to live in darkness and give me the strength to submit and to surrender to your will daily. I did that practically by confessing my sin, repenting of my sin, seeking accountability, and making a game plan. So nearing the end of this past um, semester, I got prepared to go to Alberta. And you know, I wasn't quite a Berta girl yet. I questioned why God had called me there, but I had an uncomfortable feeling that if I wasn't um, to go, I wouldn't be walking in alignment with the Lord. I had a deep conviction that being at Southern Alberta Bible Camp was where the Lord um, wanted to take me this past summer. So exams finished, and two days later, Sophie and I were road tripping to Alberta. When I arrived, I met Joshua Boss, <laughs> the guy that I would be working with for the summer. I was overwhelmed by insecurity and fear. Um, I had no confidence in myself to be capable of working with a male um, partner. I had no confidence in myself to uphold a platonic friendship. Um, I believe that because of my history and my past that I wouldn't be able to honor the working relationship between Josh and I. We had no common ground. None whatsoever. We were completely different people with completely different communication styles, and we were missing each other left, right, and center. Um, Sorry, just uh, finding my spot here. Right there. I thought, God, why am I here? How am I going to do this? It's not going to be, be on my own strength. Um, but Lord, I don't know if I even have the willingness to rely on your strength. So I pray you have your way. Halfway through May, we started spending time together in the word, in contemplation, and in prayer for one another out loud. We began to see one another through the lens of the Father. And so Teleos, the program that I was leading, is a one-month leadership program for students going into grades 11 and 12, where Josh and I were able to teach sessions about who God is and who we are in God and how that affects those around us. Um, and so I expressed to Josh that I was feeling pretty insecure because he's super passionate about youth and super passionate about teaching, and formal teaching is not a strong suit of mine. <laughs> and so we made a game plan. We would sit separately, write out our lists of who would do what and all this kind of stuff. And we'd come back together and I would read mine out loud. And after um, I had read my list, he said, Abigail, we have the exact same list. And it was an incredible moment because that was the first time that Josh and I had actually agreed on something, which 
a victory. <laughs> um, so in that moment, I knew that I would be capable of doing the thing, not because of my own strength, but because of the Lord. He had called me and he was going to do the hard work in and through me. So Josh and I continued to grapple through difficult conversations, figuring out how to communicate with one another and how to love one another well. It reflected in our summer, in our ability to trust each other, um, and our decision to come to each other each day and say, what does today look like? Um, what, are, what do we have planned? And how is it glorifying the Lord and making his kingdom known? I often found myself thinking, Josh is really teaching me a lot. The way we honored one another through having healthy boundaries, healthy conversations, and working together showed me the love of Christ. Another incredible thing that Josh said to me was that he respected me. I didn't think I needed to hear that, um, but when I heard it, whew, I began to weep like I'm about to right now. Um, I hadn't thought a man would be able to see me as Christ does. Um, flaws and beauty and be able to know, respect, and honor me by choosing to love me as a brother in Christ. And so my summer of working with Josh is a testimony of God's ability to reconcile relationships, that I went from a place of fear to a place of understanding a little more deeply, understanding my identity, understanding my value, respecting myself, and being respected by men. God continues to redeem my understanding of men through here at Summit, and it is an answer to prayer. Um, years ago, I prayed, Father, when people look at me, would they not see me, but would they see you? I think that that prayer is slowly, very slowly, but surely um, coming to fruition in my life. And I am honored that God would choose to heal my heart, to heal my understanding of him, my understanding of myself, and my understanding of men. That God would remind me of the truth that his children are not obligated to do what our sinful nature urges us to, and that I am free to live submitted to his will. That each one of us is free to live submitted to his will. And so, my encouragement to you today is to confess, to repent, to live vulnerably, to live um, live with accountability and choose to be authentic with one another, to wrestle and grapple with the Lord, to fight against sin and lay down the chains of death. Paul Tripp said in his book, Lead, Dave's class, we got to read it for her, and it's just awesome. And so Paul says, I write convinced that we, the community of believers, can be the most honest community on earth. Because there is nothing that could be known, revealed, or exposed about us that hasn't been covered by Christ's atoning work. So this is my testimony of all that God has done and all that he is capable of doing. I once had no hope and no faith and no belief in God to redeem these things because of the amount of times that I went back to sin. Yet he was faithful. And so, seek him. Surrender to him and live in obedience to him. Last week, 
uh, Abigail and I met and we were discussing her story. And I remember when I first met you, I think it was like a more weekend or you and Sophie came up like prior to being a student and, and seeing who you are today from that day is a really beautiful picture like a beautiful picture of, of, yes, of God's grace, but his transformative love in your life. Like you are a different person today because of his love. And so cool too, as you mentioned, like the Kootenai family and the love that they showed, non-blood, like biological, like no connection in that regards except through a transformative love, which is so beautiful. You can get why Paul contrasted fear and adoption, right? Those feelings of lost, of not being able to be respected, not feeling good enough to a place of belonging and meaning and purpose and identity. I can understand why he would contrast the two. In the ESV version, verse 15 It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And I like the way that that's worded. And I think somebody needs to hear that tonight because that's Abby's story. And that's many of your stories too. Like you need to be reminded tonight that he did not give you a spirit to fall back into fear. Like he's done the work for you. And I think there are a few in this room tonight that have fallen back. Fallen back in in insecurity and in fear and in doubt. Believing you're not good enough. Believing you don't qualify. Believing that it's applicable to everybody else except me because mine's too much. My past is too difficult. And I think too often in our walk with Jesus, whether it's sin or temptation or just, or just the thoughts of fear and insecurity, we fall back. We fall back from what we have of belonging and of meaning, of inheritance and significance to this meaningless roam, a wandering or a roaming with with uncertainty. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if this is actually really a thing. I have doubt and I understand doubt. Doubt's okay. It couples well with faith. But the Lord hasn't given you a spirit to fall back into fear. Like he's, he has elevated you out. He has lifted you up. He has placed you in the position of a child of his, adopted and loved. And so for those of you who are feeling that, oh, have I fallen back? Or Lord, I've fallen back into fear again. And you feel a slave again, obligated to your sin. And you're stuck in it and don't know how to get out. This message is for you. You need to be reminded tonight that he has lifted you, elevated you from slave to son. He's elevated you from being in debt to being a daughter. He has elevated you and lifted you up from being an orphan to an heir. 
This is who God is. A father to the fatherless. A protector of the widows. A defender of the widows. This is God the Father in his holy dwelling. Emily, you and your team can come back on up. A couple of years ago, Kim and I actually used uh, this passage of 14 to 17 and did a sermon series just on this section. And we like picked it apart like crazy for a couple of weeks. And as we worked through this passage and talking about identity and talking about belonging and talking about meaning, we came to this agreement collectively here on campus. We came to this agreement that like finding our true purpose, finding this meaning and this belonging and this identity wasn't in answering the question, who am I? But it was answering the question, whose am I? And it changes the perspective of our lives when it's not just trying to figure out who am I, but it's who do I belong to? Like I talked a bit about my parents and where I come from because that's a huge part of my life. And that's a huge part of our lives. That is our life. It's who do we come from? Where do we belong to? Who has gone before us? And it's the Lord who has. And he's put in the work and gave up his son so that salvation is for all those who believe. That we receive that new identity, new meaning and belonging and purpose. And so answering the question, whose am I? We are children of God. We are children of the king. And so students, don't fall back. Like, don't fall back into that place of fear. He hasn't given you the spirit of it. Don't fall back into that place of sin. He's given you the power to overcome it. Don't fall back into that place of temptation. He's given you what you need to overcome it. For God gave us a spirit of, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so I want to finish with this. And would you stand with me? This is how we're going to finish tonight. Our altar response tonight isn't going to be here on the ground kneeling. It's going to be standing and declaring, okay? If you know me, you've heard my spiel a couple of times. I often will talk about proclaiming and declaring. We need to proclaim the truth of God and the promises of God out loud, verbally, with our voice. Right? In Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about the importance of not just believing in your heart, but declaring with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so it is imperative to our relationship with the Lord and ourselves to declare who we are, to proclaim who we are in Christ. And so our altar response time is that we're going to do that collectively. We're going to sing and we're going to proclaim and we are going to declare. Okay? You good with that? Also, too, I have, Kim, can you just throw it right on the table here? Thank you. I've got a resource for you that I received from a dear friend this summer, and it is scripture verses uh, and their references and the declaration of what it makes about who we are in Christ. And it's categorized, so wonderful, categorized of who I am as being accepted and belonging to God. And there's a list of scripture verses. 
Who I am in Christ that I am secure. Who I am in Christ that I am significant, that I belong. And I think it's imperative, yes, that we collectively declare and sing out loud, but I think it's also imperative that you declare this out loud in your own life. Because my belief is this. My belief is in moments of fear or insecurity or times where we fall into sin or temptation overtakes us. I don't believe it's just a sin, a temptation, and a fear issue. I believe it's a belief issue. I think we we forget who we truly are in those moments. When fear overtakes us or we fall into sin, it's we've forgotten who we actually are. It's a belief issue. And so to overcome that, I am going to speak out God's promise about who I am in him as a child and as an heir to the king, a co-heir with Christ that we do not deserve that title, yet he gives it to us. One who has power to overcome sin because the spirit dwells inside of me. Amen? Okay, so let's, let's respond and declare together this evening.
thank you that we receive our identity in you. Thank you that we find our purpose in answering the question, whose am I? Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, salvation through Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us. Lord, I want to pray over every heart that is in this room that is feeling that fear creep in their lives again. Jesus, would you remind them of your love? Lord, would you remind them that there is nothing, nothing that can remove them out of your love, that can separate them from your love? Lord, the hardest of hearts can be changed by you. And so I pray if there are hard hearts in this room, that have heard this message kind of and have become numb to it, God, I pray that you would pierce those hearts. Lord, often we also can become cynical towards your goodness and grace in our lives because of difficult seasons and circumstances in our own lives. We can be weathered because of the reality of life. Jesus, would you bring healing to those souls in the name of Jesus? God, I pray against cynicism. I pray against a a, a critique, a spirit of critique. Lord, I I believe you want us to be critical thinkers and intentional and hard workers, but I, I pray against that negative critique in this culture. I pray that we would be people of hope, people of longing, because we know who we are, that we belong, that we are secure, that we are significant, and that would result in us being people of great hope. And Lord, those who are working through sin, as we all are, Lord, I pray that they would not turn and run from you, but that they would turn towards you as a child runs towards their father, that we would run towards you. Thank you, Lord, that we have our worth in you. So we're going to sing another song. Uh, um, After this song, I'll close us off here. Um, But I'd like you to come grab one of these papers, put it up on your mirror, put it up on your desk, keep it in your Bible, read it out loud. Uh, A great way to continue what is taking place here, what the Spirit is doing in your heart now, uh, taking it out of this place claiming who we are in God's sight. Can we sing one more song? Yeah? Great. And then grab a piece of paper. <laughs>